title of my message this morning is it's time to have a bold faith. A time to have a bold faith. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 5. And in the book of Acts, we're seeing the birth of the church. As a reminder, we know that the church was established on the day of Pentecost and it began to grow crazily fast. And we need to remember that it was within a couple, three months of the crucifixion of Jesus. So that's fresh in their mind. And the people that had crucified Christ, had killed Christ, the religious leaders, those that were rejecting all the truth that he was bringing, their attitudes hadn't changed. They still were opposing anything and everything about Jesus. And we see all kinds of persecutions that we're going to be looking at in a few moments. But today I just want us to kind of consider the way that they remained so bold in their faith. And as we continue to go through Acts, I want to stress with us the work of the Holy Spirit is continually at the forefront. But we also see, and we see it more and more as we continue into the book of Acts, the work of the Holy Spirit and the cooperation of the people with the Holy Spirit's leading. And out of that comes the kind of bold faith that will impact people's lives and that will draw people to the truth. There is a boldness that can be kind of obnoxious. Anybody ever experienced that? People you really didn't want to hear anything from about any topic were so bold they were more than willing to help. A bold faith, when it's by the Holy Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit, will also be completely surrounded in the love of God. Boldness in love will change people's lives as we cooperate with the Holy Spirit. Now the days that the disciples were in in the early church were tough. The days that we're living in today are tough. And they're getting more challenging all the time. You know, we haven't heard much about the, the term postmodernism lately. For a while we heard it all the time. I think we don't hear as much about it now because it's almost become the norm. Postmodernism, at least part of its meaning is there are no absolute truths. Everything is relevant. Now think about that for a moment. If we live in a culture that's truly postmodern, and here we are as Christians and we are standing on the Word of God which we believe to be absolute truth. And this is the absolute truth that we are supposed to share with the world around us to fulfill the Great Commission. And we're living in a world where the culture is not only neutral, it's in opposition to truth. Much of the language that we use, the words that we speak, the meanings have been changed by those that have confiscated them and given them new meanings. Tolerance. Compromise. Have become things that have caused the church to start to slide down a slippery slope of error. Tolerance and compromise in a very negative way. And if we speak truth, we are often labeled intolerant and hateful, bigoted, know-it-alls, Jesus freaks, one of those. 
in this world that keeps getting further and further and further from the truth and having no desire to hear it. But we need to remember God's at work in the midst of all of this. And He still is going to work through His Holy Spirit with the cooperation of His people. Even though times are getting more and more challenging and the hostility is growing towards the church, to the truth. I shouldn't even say the church. There's, that meaning's been messed with. We need to be willing and able to speak the truth and have a bold faith in the midst of what's going on. Churches all over the place are compromising and becoming more tolerant in what they used to call truth. I'm not all sure why it begins to happen in every case, but obviously there's a desire to draw people so we don't want to offend anybody with the truth. There becomes topics, issues that are very divisive. So we don't take a stand strongly in opposition to them because we don't want to be labeled intolerant or bigoted or hateful. Even though the Word of God is crystal clear on many of these topics. And yet we're still commanded to live and walk out our life with bold faith. Fear. Fear. When the enemy can establish fear in our lives, he wins. And so much of the church walks in a fear of man. Fear of being rejected. Fear of not being accepted. Fear of not fitting in if we stand for truth and what the Word of God says. And then a whole other reason would be the church sometimes has entered into just flat-out complacency. We're comfortable. We're satisfied. While the world around us, friends and family, are going to hell. We slip into this complacency thing. Let's not make waves. Let's just love everybody. Loving people by our silence is not really loving them the way Jesus would love them. So we need to have a bold faith and there's never been a time where it's more important. And I think anybody could say that throughout history and probably into the future, that there's never been a time more important to be bold in our faith. So as we look at Acts chapter 5 primarily this morning, I want us to consider what the disciples, the followers of Jesus were facing and how they responded with bold faith. Just a very quick review. In chapter 4 we saw where, in 3 we saw where um, Peter and John healed the cripple. You know, the silver and gold we have none, but what we have we give to you. Get up and walk. And while he's jumping around and rejoicing and, and the disciples are rejoicing, the religious people are getting all upset. In Acts chapter 4, verse 16, it said, what are we going to do with these guys? Everybody living in Jerusalem knows that they have done an outstanding miracle and we cannot deny it. Now what could be wrong with that? tell you the truth, this happens yet today. 
God is still doing miracles. He's still healing people. He's still delivering people. And you go tell the testimony and they deny it. Don't want to hear about it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer in this name. The word warn there is threaten. And it's translated threaten even as we get a little further in this section of Scripture. We got to threaten these guys so that this does not continue to spread. I believe you see two things. The resistance of man to a move of God and you see the resistance of Satan to a move of God and they will always both be at work. And we can always say that Satan's behind them both, which he probably is. But I don't believe people always know what they're doing. It goes on, it says, Then they called them in again and commanded them to speak or teach, not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Don't do this anymore. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help but speaking about what we have seen and heard. And further threats, they let them go. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. Oh, they wanted to punish him all right, and they knew what they wanted to do. They wanted to kill him. But they knew the people would go crazy and riot, so they didn't do it. And we talked last time about the response to these threats. It says the disciples, the apostles, Peter and John, went back to the rest of their friends, rest of their companions, where they were gathered and told them everything that had been said and done. And remember, they'd been imprisoned overnight. And they came back and they told everybody what had been done. And then we saw their response. And we looked at this also a couple weeks ago. They prayed in Acts chapter 4, verse 29. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God boldly. We see now the Holy Spirit and men cooperating with the Holy Spirit. Their response to the threats wasn't to flat out rebel and let's show these guys. It wasn't to run and hide in fear and tremble. It was to seek God and say, hey God, help us here. We're going to do what you want us to do. We want to do it with boldness. God, and we want you to go out and continue to do signs and wonders demonstrating that what we speak is truth. Bold faith in the midst of the threats that they were facing. They were in unity. They were of one mind and one heart. And then we read in the next few verses, which I'm not going to read, but we read how they were in unity together. And one of the things we read there is something that's misinterpreted a lot in some circles to justify something called socialism. It says whenever there was a need, they sold property, they sold a house, and they gave the monies to the leaders, the apostles, to distribute as was needed in the new church that was being established. When I say it's being misinterpreted, a lot of people say, see, the early church was socialistic. That's what it was all about. Without trying to get political, that's not what it says at all. What we see here demonstrated is generosity and love. Voluntarily given as the Holy Spirit led. Voluntarily given. 
Socialism has nothing to do with voluntary giving. It has to do with taking from one and giving to another. This is not socialism in the early church. This is the spirit of love, a spirit of generosity, a spirit of helping one another. That's what it is. And then we see Barnabas, who we read about later. He becomes a, a traveling companion with Paul. And the Barnabas here, it says there was a need, and he saw the need, and he went and sold a tract of land. And he went and he took all the money for that land, and he gave it to the apostles to distribute as it was needed. They were all in unity, one accord. And then we come to a section of ch in chapter 5 that is really one of those chapters or verses, few verses that you read and you wonder what in the world is going on. We get introduced to Ananias and Sapphira. Remember what was before this, this spirit of generosity, the spirit of love, the spirit of giving, the meeting needs, one mind, one accord, pure church in action. And then we see Ananias and Sapphira who go and sell a piece of land. I mean, if you could see, can you imagine the people's opinion of someone like a Barnabas? Wow, he sold the piece of land and he gave all the money to the church. What a great guy, loving guy. Now Ananias and Sapphira, the way it looks, <coughs> he said, we want a little bit of that praise. I'm reading between the lines a little bit. And they go sell a piece of land and it comes clear as we go through the story, he, he and his wife had talked this over. And they had decided to sell the land but they were going to keep some of it back for themselves. And they were going to give the rest of the church. But the problem is, when this happens, Peter's words are very informative. He says, Ananias, why have you let Satan into your heart? Satan is trying immediately to destroy the purity of this church, this new entity, this hypocrisy of bringing it in. And Peter says to him, hey, when you had the land before, who owned it? You did. You could do with it whatever you wanted. And when you sold it, whose money was it? It was yours. You can do with it whatever you want. But you have lied to the Holy Spirit. You have not lied to man. You have been deceitful and hypocritical. And we know the story. Ananias fell over dead. They drug him out the door by his feet. A little while later, his wife comes in and we see a similar thing play out. The question I always have when I read this section of Scripture is, my goodness, Lord, that seems a little bit firm. And I don't have the answer. But I do believe this was the beginning of this new movement called what we call the church. Its purity, its righteousness was just getting established. And this spirit of a hypocrite moving in, God didn't put up with it. And we see the results as we go on a little further. As a matter of fact, I think I'll read a few verses starting in chapter 12. This follows that event and it says, And at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. And they are all with one accord in Solomon's portico. Just a little sidebar here. Want to put up that picture I have? The reason I do that is Solomon's portico or Sol Solomon's porch was a part of this out outside wall of the temple. Many things that we read about in Scripture, a lot of the historians believe, took place right there in that porch. 
It's a huge area over there where they would meet and gather and Jesus teach there. They think, believe there was some of the healings were there. That's where they're at right now where Peter and John and the disciples are there teaching. And it's interesting when you look at the location, how quick, how close it is to the temple where in another part of it, the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin would meet, which is significant when we see the rest of the story. So it says they were all together and many signs and wonders were taking place in Solomon's porch. But none of the rest dared to associate with them. <laughs> After this Ananias and Sapphira thing, it might scare them just a little. It says they didn't want to associate it with them. However, the people held them in the high esteem. They respected them. They honored them. They were drawn to them. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitude, of men and women were constantly being added to their number. To such an extent that even they carried their sick out into the streets and they laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. And also the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. Whatever happened, whatever God's pure motivations were for the Ananias and Sapphira episode, God used it mightily to grow the church. To grow His church. When this happened, as could be expected, the religious leaders got more angry. Can you imagine? This is all taking place in Jerusalem, in the nearby vicinity of the temple, where the priests would be walking around all the time, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and here are these guys that they've threatened. Don't do anything anymore in the name of Jesus or else. And they just kept on doing what the Lord called them to do. The Holy Spirit moving in them. As I said, moves of God are always going to face resistance of man and of Satan himself. And we see that playing out in the early start of the church. And at this point, the persecution really begins to amp up. Their bold faith has been pretty good for now, but wait until the persecution really comes, and here it comes. Starting in verse 17 of Acts chapter 5. Then the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with anger and jealousy. Filled with jealousy. The attention is going to those who are preaching about Jesus. And these are uneducated men, a bunch of old fishermen, etc. And we're losing influence and we're losing power and we're losing authority. They're filled with jealousy. They arrest the apostles and put them in the public jail. And it appears they arrested all the apostles this time, not just Peter and John. They arrested the apostles, put them in a public jail, but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts as they had been told and began to teach the people. And then it says, they gathered together the Sanhedrin and sent the guards to go get these guys. And they come back and say, they aren't there. Because an angel of the Lord had came during the night 
and led them out. And when they got there, the guards were still in place, the jail was secure, but the people were missing. And I love that verse. They were perplexed and wondered what was coming next. I like to try to put myself in these stories. What would you and I have thought? We put him in jail. The guards are there, the jail's secure, and there's nobody in there. What are we dealing with here? And while they're doing this, and why they're perplexed, and they're probably all standing around looking at each other and talking, what are we going to do next? What are we going to do now? Here comes somebody and says, hey, remember those guys you put in jail? They're out here in the temple center. They're preaching. They're teaching about Jesus. So they sent the guards and said, go get them. And it almost looks like the, the apostles put themselves under uh, arrest themselves. Because they knew the crowds were going to go crazy if they tried to arrest them. And the guards knew that as well. And they went with them. And let's go to verse 27 of chapter 5. As they brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. What in the world is it about the name of Jesus? Think about it. It's almost as if you can go preach about anything else you want and we'll ignore you, but if you preach about the name of Jesus, we have a problem. There's something about that name. The name above all other names. You ever noticed you can talk about God? You can say spiritual. You can even talk about Satan. But start using the name of Jesus in your conversation and everything gets weird. People just don't want to hear that name. But the only time we hear it is when it's used as a curse word which makes absolutely no sense other than a spiritual sense. Why would I hit my thumb with a hammer and yell Jesus Christ if I'm not praying for healing? But we do. There's something about that name. And they said, do not. We have commanded you over and over, don't do anything in that name of Jesus. And trying to make Him guilty of Jesus' blood. That's kind of a no-brainer. You're the ones that had him crucified. Verse 29, Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men. Bold faith in the face of persecution. Verse 30, and the God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. Bold faith. Quit speaking and teaching the way you are. As a matter of fact, it sounds like you're trying to blame us. Well, let's remove any question about the matter. You hung him on a tree. You killed him. But God exalted him to his own right hand as a prince and savior that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Like another little slap in the face. We got the Holy Spirit because we obey Him. 
The religious leaders are furious. But they don't know what to do. They're furious. They've tried every threat and it doesn't seem to be working. The apostles' faith has not been suffocated by fear. Fear and faith will not coexist. When we allow fear to creep in when it comes to sharing truth and the good news of the gospel, our faith is going to be gone. And we are to walk by faith, not by sight, not by what's going on around us. Bold faith in the face of persecution. Acts 5, 33-42. I guess the real meat of what I want us to see is in these verses. Starting at verse 33. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. They knew what they wanted to do. They wanted to kill them. They wanted to deal with the problem like they tried to deal with the problem with Jesus. You might have thought that they've learned their lesson by now, but it has not worked. They're furious. What is it they're furious about? Think about it for a second. What is it they're furious about? They're furious about teaching about Jesus. They're furious about signs and wonders and miracles and people getting healed and delivered. They're furious about these things. Filled with jealousy. Hatred. But in the midst of this, as they're, they're wanting to kill him, there is a particular Pharisee, this is verse 34, named Gamaliel. He was a Pharisee. He was well-respected. They're either having lots of fun or they're scared to death over there. <laughs> Gamaliel, in the midst of this cauldron of hatred, where they want to kill these apostles, he steps up. And because he is well respected, they actually listen to him. And we need to keep in the back of our mind a little bit of the historical context here. At this time in Israel and Jerusalem's history, they were under rule and control of the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire was wise enough to let them have a little bit of power and authority so the religious leaders were happy, but we didn't want to cross a line. Because the last thing we want to do is lose our power and our authority and our influence and our wealth because we offend Rome. So this is always in the background of what's taking place. And Gamaliel says these words to him. He says, some time ago. Now I'm going to read verse 35. Then he addressed them. And consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. So they want to kill him. And he says, think about it for a minute. And he probably wanted to say, remember what you did to Jesus. Do we want 12 martyrs instead of only one? Think about what we're going to do here. We get too big an uprising, guess what might happen? We might see Rome come in and settle things. Consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. And then he reminds them in verse 36, some time ago, there was a guy named Thudas who appeared, I love this, claiming to be somebody, claiming to be somebody, and claiming to be somebody was good enough. He got a few people to follow him. Claiming to be somebody. About 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all his followers were dispersed, 
and it all came to nothing. And what Dizan said is, and the Sanhedrin stayed out of it, and our hands were clean, and our power and authority and wealth was not hindered. Think about it. And then he reminds them of another event in history. It says, after him, Judas, the Galilean, appeared in the days of the census. They did the census for primarily one reason. To raise taxes. So he led a tax rebellion. A tax uprising. And he led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed. And all his followers were scattered. Rome took care of the problem. We kept our hands clean. We're still in power. We're still in authority. Our little income stream isn't being hindered. Think about what we're doing here. Verse 38. Therefore, because of those things that I've reminded you of, this present case I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. Once again, the Roman government is going to come in and crush this thing. If it gets out of control, they're going to come in and crush it. If all of a sudden these people are causing problems, they're going to come and crush it. Let Rome take care of this human problem. But then he goes on, however, however, if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You only find yourselves fighting against God. And I believe going on said is something like, only God can defeat the Roman Empire. Which is kind of nice because he did. But, He's telling these guys what we're really fighting for, what they really wanted, what they're really so upset about is this Jesus has come. He's not coming talking about religion. He's not coming talking about following the laws. He's not coming and talking about obeying this, that, and every other thing you can imagine. He's coming preaching a message through his disciples of a relationship with Jesus Christ. And they hated it. And God was doing signs and wonders through the power of the Holy Spirit confirming the truth. And they hated it. And these guys were being threatened and imprisoned for speaking the truth. Boldly. With bold faith. Verse 40 says, His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles back in and they flogged Him. Flogged them. That word flogged. They beat the living tar out of these guys. Picture Jesus. He was flogged. Same word. They took these apostles and flogged each and every one of them. They couldn't let them go without anything happening. The people know we're upset. The people know we keep bringing them in. The people know we've arrested them. And now we let them go. We're going to be a mockery. We're going to lose respect. We're going to lose influence. We're going to look power. We've got to do something. We can't kill them. The people will go crazy. We don't want to fight against God if that's who it is. But let's beat them. And the word there is dero. And that word, here's some of the words that could be translated into English. To flay, as in flay, scourge, thrash, or to skin. 
they flogged the apostles. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. They flogged them. They beat them. They went back to their companions. A bloody mess. They were going to be carrying the scars of this beating the rest of their lives. Proudly. Because they were able to suffer like Jesus suffered. Bold faith motivated them. Jesus motivated them. Verse 41, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name of Jesus. In fact, they may have remembered in Matthew chapter 10, verse 17, Jesus had given them this warning when He was speaking to them. Be on your guard against men. They will hand you over to the local councils and flog you in their synagogues. The prophecy was fulfilled. And they went out rejoicing that they could suffer like Jesus had suffered. In verse 42, day after day in the temple courts, from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Bold faith in the difficult, difficult, difficult times they were in. What an amazing attitude. We're going to follow God's command instead of men's. What do we have to fear? What are we afraid of? What prevents us from sharing our faith? Boldly. Isn't it time to have bold faith? Isn't it time to stand up and proclaim the truth of the good news of the gospel? The only thing that can transform a life completely is Jesus and what he's done for us. And we have the message. Bold faith. What are we afraid of? What am I afraid of? What am I intimidated by? What keeps me from saying something? What keeps me from introducing something? What am I afraid of? Or am I just complacent? Am I just comfortable and don't want to rock the boat? We all have these opportunities. And notice, no matter what took place, no matter what persecution they faced, Their faith was bold as the Holy Spirit moved them and continually we see and they were increasing in numbers day by day. The church was exploding and growing. There's still a lot of room for growth in God's church. Think about all the blessings we have. Think about the freedom that we have. Have we gotten too comfortable? Well, if we stay this comfortable for much longer, we're not going to be comfortable anymore. Man and the enemy are winning the battle in too many places. We know we have the victory, but that doesn't mean we're not supposed to fight in every battle. As the Holy Spirit leads and guides us, standing for truth and love, 
what steals our boldness? Hopefully, most of you are, are involved in a life group. Our life groups are doing big church right now, which has nothing to do with the size of the church. It has to do with thinking big for the kingdom of God. Andy Stanley in the booklet, Big Church, in chapter 3, page 35, gives us some ideas, some practical thoughts of how can we be bold in our faith. They're not very complicated. The first one is simply this. Bold is deciding to say something when it'd be easier to say nothing. Ever been in one of those situations? There are so many times when there's an opportunity sitting around the coffee table at Ballot and One Stop with a whole bunch of guys that I have an opportunity to say something. And I would confess to you more often than not, I don't say anything. Because it's just easier. What makes it easier? Well, gee, I'm not going to have everybody look at me and silence fill the coffee table. Or one or two look at me and really get critical. But it's amazing the times that I do say something, it's none of that happens. None of that happens. It's all here. Fear. Fear of man. Fear of rejection. Fear of saying something and then they'll think I'm weird, stupid, or something else. Well, I'm already weird and I'm not very smart, so what have I got to worry about? And most of us can fit some kind of description like that. So he says, look for something to say when the opportunity presents itself, even if it would be easier to keep your mouth shut. Remember, we want to speak what the Holy Spirit is prompting us to speak. And when we speak what the Holy Spirit wants us to speak, because he is love, we will speak it in love. may not be received that way, but that's not our problem. Number two thing Andy Stanley points out is be bold in taking advantage of the opportunities that present themselves. I mean, it's uncanny and a little bit silly how many times I've prayed, and I bet some of you have, and the prayers went something like this. Lord, please give me opportunities to share the good news of Jesus. You know what happens when you pray that prayer? All kinds of opportunities come your way. What do we do with the opportunities? I mean, sometimes I've been specific. Lord, give me an opportunity to speak to so-and-so. Wouldn't you know? Here they come. I mean, I hide in an office out in a storage shed and they still find me. And it's like, I know what they need. I know what I should be doing here. Ugh, is this the right time? Lord, give me a sign. <laughs> I told you, I'm not very smart. Give me a sign. They drove in, Mike. They came and knocked on your door. They're sitting in your chairs. Open your mouth. Do something. Do something. When the opportunities present themselves, take advantage of the opportunity. God will give you the words to speak, no matter how nervous you are. What's the worst that can happen? I get the office to myself again. So, third, we don't just take advantage of opportunities, we create opportunities to be bold. 
we can create opportunities to be bold. There are so many times when we could walk into a situation, we could be standing back here and we could see something taking place and we can walk right into that and become part of that and create the opportunity for boldness by saying something. We can create an opportunity to take advantage of boldness by just looking at someone. Have you ever went up to someone that you saw really looked distressed? They looked worried. They looked scared. And you just walk up to them, maybe even put your arm around them. Say, you okay? Oh, I got a lot of stuff going on. I don't know what I'm going to do. Got a lot of anxiety. You know what? I know someone who can take care of that anxiety for you. I know someone who can carry your burdens for you. I know somebody who will walk alongside you all the way through this dark time. Simply because you created the opportunity to go and be bold in your faith. Our culture and our country is in a bad place. But it's when people are in a bad place that they're really searching for answers. So in the midst of what's going on in our culture around us, if we speak the truth in love, with bold faith, we can have an impact that will draw people to Christ. One of the things that often seems to scare people is, but what if they ask me, how do I get saved? It's not this complicated, right? The gospel message is really, really, really simple. Matter of fact, there's a scripture that probably 90% of us in here have memorized. What scripture might that be? John 3.16. There it is. God so loved the world. He loved you before you were a good person. He loved you. God so loved the world that he came up with a solution. He gave his only son, Jesus, came to earth as a child, lived a perfect sinless life. He gave his only begotten son, that all we need to do is believe in Him, who He is and what He's done. He died for my sins. He was raised from the dead. All we need to do is believe in Him, His only begotten Son. We will never perish. We will never be separated from God. We will have eternal life in His presence if we receive the gift of salvation. There it is. Elaborate on it as you feel led. But there it is. What do we have to be afraid of? Bold faith. It is time for bold faith. Let's pray. Lord, I do confess that I, and probably many of us here, have been very, very insecure about our faith at times. We've allowed fear to creep in. And we've missed some of the opportunities that you brought before us. Lord, I am so thankful that you give us more opportunities. I'm so thankful that you don't love me any less. I am so thankful, God, that you don't keep track of when I mess up. Lord, I pray for each and every single one of us here that we would have a fresh new boldness in our faith, that we would have a confidence in who you are and the message that you have given us to share and that we would have a confidence in the power of the Holy Spirit to open hearts and change lives. God, that we would not allow fear to suffocate faith in our lives. God, that we would 
take advantage of those opportunities to speak up when it would be easier to remain silent. That we would have the faith and confidence in you to take advantage of opportunities to share the good news when they present themselves. And Lord, that we would continually be watchful as to how we can create the opportunities to share the good news of Jesus. God, I thank you for the examples you have given us in your word. We praise you for their faithfulness, their goodness, their faith. And Father, we humbly take on that mantle of taking the good news of the gospel to the world around us. And we pray for your strength and your Holy Spirit and your grace to lead and guide and direct us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.